Thank you, BJ. Am I right to assume that that poem came from Passion Art? <sighs> Outstanding. Um, if, if, that, if that little title, Passion Art, does not resonate with you, talk to BJ and Sharon. They will, uh, they will fill you in. Um, I, uh, I had this experience just about 30 seconds ago, a minute ago. I got this incredible appalling shot from sitting that close to all the flowers. <laughs> so, um, Anna, if I start just hacking halfway during through the message, um, uh, I, I... Oh, oh. Last time I asked my doctor daughter to get me a, a hot water, um, one of the nurses complained I didn't turn to them. Um, I, I think uh, either, either one, I just, if I start really struggling, just, I just being this close to all those cut flowers might just, uh, might just put my allergies, which have been fairly good since my sickness is over, um, might just put me, uh, put me over the top. And um, just a, a little bit different service this morning. Um, we're going to, after message, we will sing one more song, and then we're going to gather around the cross and spend some time flowering the cross and in fellowship. So... Um, We'll be, uh, we'll be doing that just after the message when we're, uh, when we're getting ready to close. Um, I tell people that if you, uh, if you can't preach on Easter Sunday, then you're in the wrong business. So, Easter Sunday morning. Um, and, uh, and when we open the story in Mark's Gospel, um, the, the, the text says, Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they, that is the women, who had... At the end of Shabbat, the afternoon, the evening before, bought spices and spent the night, because it would have been an all-night job, to prepare those spices to anoint Jesus' body. Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other the question on Easter Sunday, that first Resurrection Sunday. They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the tomb. Uh, Peter Paul Rubens painted this pit portrait picture of the resurrection in 1611. Um, my, uh, my little problem with, uh, with Peter Paul Rubens' picture is that Jesus looks a little more like a power lifter and a little less like the lamb who had been slain. I mean, I, I, you know, he, humanly speaking, he had just gone through the passion. I don't think this is the impression that, um, that, that the disciples got, you know, from the resurrected Jesus. But what I love about the painting is that, that the resurrected Jesus comes out and stands right on that stone. Um, and, uh, and, and the question is in the picture, who moved it? Was it the soldiers? Was it the disciples? It couldn't have been the women because they just knew they couldn't do it. Um, uh, was it Jesus himself? Um, uh, who moved that stone? And I, I just need to tell you that for 2,000 years, but especially for the last 200 years, this question has, um, has driven Christians and skeptics alike. And I want to introduce you to a few of the people who have asked this question in really significant ways. This is Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. Um, in the middle of the, uh, excuse me, in the, uh, in the early 1800s, he was a uh, very significant lawyer in America. He wrote the first really important um, uh, uh, legal work on, on uh, evidence and testimony for American jurisprudence, um, still being used today. And he took that expertise to write a little book called The Testimony of the Evangelists, in which he goes through the Gospels to determine whether the evidence and testimony that the 
evangelists have, that the text, the four Gospels have, to the empty tomb is credible or not. And um, he comes down on the yes side. What's really interesting is that the second half of his book is on the legitimacy of Jesus' trial. And in an era when, in an age when, in a season when, um, so much is being said in public about legitimacy of legal proceedings, um, I think everybody could probably read the second half of Greenleaf's book and, uh, and, and benefit a little bit as well. Fifty years later, B.B. Warfield, the last um, uh, uh, really important Princeton Seminary president um, uh, and, uh, and, and scholar of the 19th century, wrote a treatise on the resurrection, a historical fact. And he was the first one to come up with what I think is the key way to organize thinking about this question. There are only three possibilities, he said, which can account for these, uh, the facts of um, the empty tomb in the, in the Gospels. Either the original disciples of Christ were deceivers and deliberately concocted the story, or, number two, they were woefully deluded, or, number three, the resurrection is a fact. And I hope you can see kind of the influence of Warfield on people like Lewis and, and uh, McDowell and people who would follow. Fifty years later, a uh, uh, rationalist, modernist, a magazine um, writer uh, who went by the pen name of Frank Morrison, um, as a skeptic, decided to look into whether or not the resurrection story, especially those seven words in the Apostles' Creed, on the third day he rose from the dead, that we confessed this morning, were true or not. And, uh, and the story he ended up writing, ten years after his journey, after his skeptical journey began, um, uh, turned into the most important book of the early 20th century, Who Moved the Stone? He asked the same question, and um, uh, Frank Morrison became a believer. Uh, a generation later, Josh McDowell asked the same question using the, uh, the C.S. Lewis model of Lord, lunatic, or liar um, in terms of the resurrection. And in my generation, the, one, the author who's most influenced me, the one who's asked the question for me, um, most importantly, is Lee Strobel, um, who wrote The Case for Christ. Um, uh, if, you, uh, if you look at his picture in Wikipedia, he looks like a nerd. So I went on his website and got a really formal picture that makes him look uh, uh, like a lawyer. He's a journalist who began his study of the case for Christ as a skeptic after his wife became a believer. Um, and, and what he wrote, uh, uh, he, he ended up writing the, um, the foreword to the newest, ver the newest edition of, of um, Frank Morrison's book. Um, Fifty years after Ross's book first appeared, this is the uh, um, preface to Frank Morrison's new edition. Fifty years after... Ross's book, Frank Morris's real name was Albert Ross, first appeared 30 years after his death, death. My wife's conversion to Christianity prompted me to begin investigating whether there is any credibility in the claims of Christ. One of the first books I read in my spiritual journey was Who Moved the Stone? The book spurred my investigation, which eventually led to my decision to become a follower of Jesus November of 1981. Like Ross's, this account of the historical facts I find personally persuasive. Um, that is a very dangerous question to ask. Um, and for 200 years, people who've asked that question um, 
end up meeting the resurrected Jesus. Um, in, this, uh, in this Byzantine um, picture influenced by the Roman Catholic tradition of Jesus is resurrecting with people he's saving from, uh, from his visit to hell. Um, but, but I love the, the fact that, uh, that Jesus at the center of the resurrection um, is still the center of the question. What about, where, what about the empty tomb? Um, who moved that stone? Um, this morning, I want to deal with that question with you. Um, from Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on that first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. They asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large. Megalithos. It's a wonderful, a wonderful uh, 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 Greek. Very large. had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And in this last verse in Mark's gospel, trembling and bewildered, The women went out, fled from the tomb. They said nothing. They didn't spread the word along the way like the demoniac from across the the Sea of Galilee. Um, uh, They they didn't say anything until they got to the disciples because they were afraid, the text says. Um, uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity on a Resurrection Sunday to uh, read again the story of an empty tomb and those women who discovered that you were risen. And Father, I ask to be uh, uh, transformed from uh, fear as those those women to uh, resurrection joy this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, I just want to say a few things about this story to get us going. Um, and, uh, and one is, uh, um, first, about the women. In, in carrying out what they believe is their final obligation to their Lord, these women are publicly identifying with him in a way that, uh, that very few people, other than Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, as we'll find out, were doing. Um, all the men are still hiding in the upper room, right? It's the women who are identifying with Jesus. It is the women who are fulfilling their their final, what they think is their final obligation to their Lord in anointing his body. And uh, there's something very, very special about that. Secondly, uh, as as Rubens maybe hints, the stone is rolled away not so that Jesus could get out. Are we clear about that? The stone is rolled away so that we have the assurance of the empty tomb. Um, that's the, the main point of, of this story. Um, the, the young man in this story, uh, in uh, Matthew's Gospel, there's two. Mark only records one of them. Uh, th- th- this young man reminds the women uh, of something they should have remembered, but in the just incredible experience of the passion the, uh, the previous 36 hours, 48 hours, had forgotten. 
that everything that had happened from Jesus' entry in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday last week to the passion of Jesus, his trial and his beating and his crucifixion, everything had happened just as he told them. And the last thing he told them on at least three occasions in Mark's Gospel is that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests and he's going to be beaten and killed and on the third day he will rise and this young man this angel reminds the women that nothing has happened in the last week that he had not told them it happened just as Jesus said um, uh, Mark ends this story in a very strange way and a lot of people are uncomfortable with Mark ending the story with they were afraid um, but uh, I, I'm one who believes that Mark's story ends here because, precisely because he knows the, the, uh, the fact that the story ends with resurrection joy and everybody he's telling knows the, the story ends that way. Um, but he ends with, with, with what I'm going to call anticipatory fear. Uh, I had the opportunity on, on Good Friday to... Uh, be at a Good Friday service in Mount Vernon where our own Jean Beesholt, who is with her family this morning, not, not with us, um, was there because her daughter-in-law Joni and son Terry both sing in the first Mount Vernon CRC choir. And I went to their service and so I sat with, uh, with Joni, and, I mean with Jean, and we had a chance to talk. On Monday, Jean is getting her scan after six months of chemo. And on Wednesday, she, she will have her consultation with her oncologist. How do you feel, even when the doctors have told you everything is looking good, how do you feel when you're anticipating a scan and then a meeting with your oncologist? Now, as a chaplain at the hospital, I have this conversation on a almost weekly basis. Um, and I will tell you that even when it's all good news around you, there is an anticipatory angst in that situation. As these women, even with the promise Jesus had given them that on the third day he would rise, are still um, uh, uh, embraced and are still covered up by the, by the fear of everything that's happened in the last few months, last few weeks of Jesus' life, the last few hours of Jesus' earthly life. And, uh, and there is an anticipatory fear that, that gives way on Resurrection Sunday to incredible joy. Um, that, that fear is temporary in the gospel story. Um, they get good news. And um, we're praying for some really good news for Gene on, uh, on, on Wednesday. Um, and finally, this empty tomb, as I've already suggested, it be becomes an essential part of our resurrection faith, and, uh, and we're going to want to know why. Um, now, um, this, uh, this story at the end of Mark's Gospel um, is, in our scheme of things, Act 3. 
Act 1 in Mark's Gospel, um, and for those of you who are just here with us on, on Easter, um, this has been our sermon series, so I'll just do a little catch-up here. Um, Act 1 is the first 10 chapters of Mark, when, um, when the, uh, the Messiah uh, introduces his, his mission. Act 2 is the Messiah going from Galilee to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many, as he reveals particularly what his mission is as Messiah. And Act 3 begins with the uh, triumphal entry and ends with the crucifixion and resurrection. Mark's gospel is a gospel in, um, in three acts. And, uh, and the center of Act 3, and I'll, I'll show you why in just a second, the center of Act 3 is what happened on Calvary, the, that hill where the cross was where Jesus died. Um, and, and this is the, the backstory to Mark 16, the end of Mark 15. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, and the text says, and there were some other people there as well, said, surely this man was the son of God. The, uh, the, the dramatic climax of Mark's gospel. Um, in the back, I have a few more of the posters of Mark's gospel. Um, if, if you can see the, the screen, you'll notice that, um, that uh, Act 1 begins with the father saying, this is my son at Jesus' baptism. The center of Act 2 is the transfiguration where the father says, this is my son. Act 3 the central statement is made not by the Father, not in front of the uh, disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is glorified, but the central statement of Act 3 is given by a centurion, certainly this man is the Son of God, um, the very center. But the resurrection becomes the, 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 the necessary conclusion, um, the thing that ties the gospel together. Um, as, as, we, as we look at the, the dramatic flow of Mark's gospel. What happened? We're on, Cal we're on Calvary. Um, the cross is there. Jesus has just died. Some women were watching from a distance. And Mark goes to, to list who the women were. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. And many other women had come to Jerusalem who were also there as they gathered around uh, the, the cross as Jesus was dying. It was the preparation day, um, Friday afternoon, as the high Shabbat of Passover is about ready to begin. So as evening approached, and um, if you've ever been in Israel on a Friday afternoon, you know what this means. About 2 o'clock, shutters of stores start closing, and the metro shuts down, and the hotels start putting out their Shabbat candles. And the elevators go to Shabbat mode. What that means is there's always one elevator in every motel that you get in and it goes up every floor and down every floor. So that if you're an Orthodox Jew, you don't have to push a button. Um, and, uh, and, and the streets be become quiet as in some neighborhoods actually barricades come out to, to keep the cars from going on the streets. And the city changes. And prepar so evening approaches on Friday, Good Friday afternoon. And we know what happens. That in order that Jesus' body would be taken down before Shabbat starts, 
Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked for his body and lay his body in what we find out is his unused tomb. Jesus enters Jerusalem on an unused colt, and he exits Jerusalem in an unused tomb. I mean, there is some synergy there, right? As, uh, as the, uh, the Old Testament rule that in the, most re- in the most important times of our ritual, we should use new vessels, um, as, the, uh, as the text says in Numbers 19. Um, as evening approaches, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus ask for the body, and he's buried, and the women are there watching. So they know exactly where the tomb is. Um, it, it turns out that the only people in Jerusalem, the only Jews in Jerusalem, who aren't keeping the uh, Shabbat rightly are the Pharisees themselves who go back to, who go back to Pilate and, uh, and ask for the guard. They had to become ritually unclean on a Shabbat in order to enter Pilate's uh, residence. Um, it's a very, very, very strange story. Now, th- this is a, a, a map that I really like of Jerusalem. Um, you'll see that uh, the, um, the uh, uh, traditional site of Golgotha is just to the west, outside the, the wall, the, the wall of the first century. Later on, the wall was built around it, but in Jesus' day, it was outside the wall. Um, and it would have been about a 50-minute walk from those women from the, play, the, high, the, the upper room where they were probably staying with the, the disciples, which was just about 100 meters to the east of, on, on the map, what is the, uh, the high priest's palace. Um, they would have walked out and, um, and, uh, and gone to where, the, where Golgotha was, the, the place of the crucifixion. Um, and just so to give you a little sense, um, the, the Via Dolorosa that you sometimes hear about, Jesus' path from his trial in the Antonio Fortress to Herod's palace and back and then carrying the cross would have carried him through the, winding through the city of Jerusalem out the gates and only a couple of hundred meters to the hill where he was crucified. Um, today, this is what that site looks like. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher, now inside the city walls, is built up over that site. Um, and uh, a pilgrim would approach the, the, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from this direction come to this nondescript door in a very plain-looking building that is one of the most ornate and, uh, and holy sites in all of Christianity. For inside this gate is, for inside that door, as you go up a little stair to the right, is the final station of the cross, the, the crucifixion, where, uh, where traditionally Jesus died. And then you turn to the left and you look down and, and there is, under, underneath those lamps is the stone, the traditional stone where they laid Jesus when he came down from the cross. And in the background, you can see that mass of people heading around the corner. On this particular visit to Jerusalem, I did not walk through that mass of people. It would have taken probably six hours to get to the um, Holy Sepulcher, the, the, the empty tomb. And all those pilgrims are waiting hours in line to go wind their way around the, uh, the Holy Sepulcher to see the empty tomb, the, 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 today the empty tomb. Um, this is what that space looks like as the, the pilgrims move in, in a huge mass and, and wait hours to go in and, and see the empty tomb. Um, it would have been a 10-minute walk for those women from the upper room to the, uh, th- that tomb in the first century. Um, now it would take you all day. Um, uh, to make it. Um, 
but, but I, I, I want to give you th- this picture. Um, because the Holy Sepulchre, we believe, really is built over the empty tomb. And um, in 326 AD, when Constantine's mother, um, Queen Helena, was rebuilding holy sites in Jerusalem, she took the hill down, as you can see, and that, that little building in the rock um, is, is, uh, is that building, right? It's, it's, and they opened up the rock and built the, holy, the, the, the modern tomb sepulcher right there that you can look in and see that it's empty. Um, and just not more than 50 meters away on a little hill was the place of the cross where still today there is Jerusalem bedrock underneath where I stood and had that picture of the, the, uh, the last of the stations of the cross. Um, that is the, uh, the, the picture of where these women went. And, um, and this is probably something of what the, um, the site looked like in Jesus' day. As, uh, as the women see from the cross the very place where Joseph and Nicodemus laid Jesus' body and know where it is and saw the very large stone that was placed in the way. Um, the, uh, the dramatic background in Mark's Gospel and the geographic background in Mark's Gospel. What do we want to say? Well, I, that, that this is the dramatic conclusion of Mark's, the dramatic climax of Mark's Gospel, but he can't end until resurrection. Um, and, and the second thing I want to say is these women, we've already mentioned just the, their, their courage in identifying with Jesus, but what I want to emphasize is that they are acting out of incredible courage and devotion and faith. That even though Jesus died, and they are uncertain of what's going to happen next. Now, certainty is going to come very shortly. But they are uncertain what's going to happen next. They still performed their Shabbat ritual, which supported their faith. They still waited until Sabbath ended before purchasing the spices and spending all night preparing to anoint Jesus' body. Um, they still, unlike the Pharisees, carried out um, the, uh, the, the ritual that had, for their entire lives, supported their faith. And now they believed was going to support them as they thought Jesus was dead and um, the, the, the very faith that is going to explode into new life when they realize Jesus is alive. Um, I just, the, the story ends with them being in fear, but the story is built on their, their de- the devotion and faith of, uh, of these incredible women um, who go to the tomb. And, and, and um, finally, just something about the, the importance of bringing the, the cross and the empty tomb together. Romans 4. Uh, Paul is, uh, is trying to explain just how important it is that Abraham's faith is what, is, uh, is what uh, God credited to him for righteousness. That is, it's Abraham's faith that allowed God's righteousness to be wrapped around him. The words it was credited to him, Paul says, were not written for Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, you and me, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. He was delivered over to death, 
for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. And what we know is that Jesus' resurrection is ultimately what assures me that, um, that his teachings are true. That assures me of the integrity of his claims, especially the claim to be the Son of God and to be my Savior. And assure me of his power to carry out his promises. Um, that's how important resurrection is. Well, I kind of uh, blasted Peter Paul Rubens for his, uh, his bodybuilding Jesus. Um, but there's something really important about the power of resurrection. Three thoughts to end, and I'll be quick here. Um, uh, how do we move from resurrection alarm, that word that gets repeated in the text, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified, the very human story of Jesus. He is risen, he is not here, the very divine story of Jesus. See the place where they laid him. Make sure you note the empty tomb. Number one, the resurrection matters because it gives our faith a solid, historic, true foundation. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried he was raised up on the third day. And by the way, this is why the uh, Apostles' Creed included that part about he was buried, because 1 Corinthians 15 does. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that we apostles bear witness to that fact. He appeared to Peter and to the twelve and then 500. And then Paul says to me as one, I didn't get to see him um, as in his, uh, before his ascension, to me as one abnormally born and that's the name he would give to each one of us who meets Jesus right now um, like uh, like Paul he'd call us uh, not eyewitnesses but those abnormally born into the kingdom um, I hope that doesn't bother you too much um, it's Paul's name for himself uh, number two um, it, it in this resurrection story Fear turns to joy. Lives are transformed when they meet the resurrected Jesus. Later on that day, after Jesus has appeared to several of the women, and Jesus has appeared to Peter, and Jesus has appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, the, the disciples and the women are gathered back in the upper room, and Jesus appears among them. And, uh, and, and Jesus makes this incredible statement. Um, and I'm reading from Luke 24 now. As they were talking about these things, the women, the two on the road to Emmaus, the, the disciples, um, they're all together. They're talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why are, do doubts arise in your, heart, in your heart? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. That's why I think that Peter Paul Rubens picture is a little bit too much because his hands and feet revealed um, the signs of crucifixion. And they disbelieved for joy. Isn't that a great way to describe what was going on, that, that transformation? Um, that, that disbelief just gets dissolved into, into incredible joy. And then he said to them, have you anything to eat? just to prove to them that the resurrection was true. 
um, that, that he could eat. Now, I, I, I must say that you know what Jesus ate with his disciples right now, right? A piece of fish. Um, and I'm a, little, I'm a heretic. I admit to that. Um, I would like to have four sacraments in the Christian Reformed Church. I think we ought to be washing feet. I just think that's a no-brainer. And I think we ought to be eating fish together on the basis of Luke 24. So, this afternoon, while the rest of you are having ham or brisket or something, um, I'm cooking up a really nice piece of sockeye for my kids. Just, just, so, just in honor of Luke 24. Just, just, so, just so you know. Um, that, 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 um, that it is meeting Jesus and maybe eating fish together that transforms lives in this story. Um, that's why Mark can end with, and they were afraid. If Mark had told the next six hours of the story, they would have ended disbelieving for joy as disbelief dissolves into, uh, in, into a credible joy. And, and finally, this is the salvation. This is the moment that Scripture had been pointing to. 700 years before, the prophet Isaiah said, on this mountain, I will have a feast for my, uh, for my people. Um, kind of like breakfast this morning. On this mountain, um, the, the shroud that has covered my people, the darkness that has covered the nations will disappear and he will swallow up death forever. On this mountain, that this would be the place that would fulfill all those Old Testament prof, uh, promises that, uh, that God was going to send salvation. Isaiah 25 continues this way. On that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. I hope I made the point strong enough that even in the confusion and fear of Good Friday and, and Holy Saturday, those women didn't lose their faith. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. Um, the Old Testament looks forward. And on Easter Sunday, we have the opportunity to look back on that same salvation. On the mountain of the Lord, he swallowed up death forever. Father, thank you this morning for a, uh, a resurrection moment. And, and Father, I ask that, uh, that we would know the joy of having uh, fear dissolve into transformed lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, mighty to save? Outstanding.